Hello, you're listening to Perpetual Learning. I'm Manjula Salvaraja. If you're a foodie, you're going to really like this conversation. And I'm Suvan Siva, and I confess I do like food. Who doesn't? That's true. Who doesn't, right? (laughs) We're here to talk about the disruption of big food. So let's kick this off. You know, let me start off here. So then talk to me about one disruptor in the space who, who blows you away. Yeah, I wouldn't classify these guys as a disruptor, but Instacart, you know, continues to impress me in their ability to deliver food in the same day. And, and for context, having worked, you know, at, at a big retailer in the past and just understanding some of the underlying supply chain challenges, what Instacart has built in terms of a local city infrastructure is quite remarkable, right? My caveat is that they still need to figure out the unit economics and and likely own a larger part of the value chain. But the fact that I can order groceries on my phone from multiple stores and have it delivered, at least to me, is personally a game changer, right? Especially when work work gets busy, right? It saves me at least Mm -hmm. two to three hours a week and and saves me at least, you know, reduces probably my one and only chore. for the week. So, you know, I, I think, you know, people listening will probably look at this as a 1% problem. However, I do think that Instacart is in the same phase as Amazon was before they launched Prime. So Amazon, for context, you know, had next day delivery and, and you know, it was quite an expensive um, proposition, right? And, 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 you know, took them a while to figure out. But once they were able to increase the frequency of purchases, you know, they launched Prime and, and, you know, they have the business that they have today, which is, you know, a very strong logistics infrastructure company with obviously the, the retail platform that they've built and it's given them a huge advantage. And I see Instacart, um, you know, just given the ecosystem that they've built along with the logistics that they have to, uh, to, you know, eventually perhaps build a, a similar advantage in the food delivery space now it sounds like there's there's money to be made here there's quite a business opportunity but first let's let's get through a definition for people who may not know what the overton window is because that's that's a concept that that you're using to look at big food what is the overton window yeah, so it's a term that was coined by a political theorist, Joseph Overton, in the 1990s. It's grown a lot more popular these days, uh, often, you know, for political reasons. But, you know, it, it's essentially defined as the range of topics that are generally considered to be politically acceptable. And, you know, in, in my opinion, you know, to many of us, it feels like, you know, this window has grown quite a bit. However, in reality, there's more of a tendency, I think, to simply fight over more trivial differences that are easy to understand and, and, you know, essentially creating a distraction to shift the focus away from perhaps more complicated issues that require higher level thinking and, quite honestly, more focus. How does that, though, uh, how does that apply to looking at, at food? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a very, you know, nuanced conversation, but, you know, building on my point earlier, we suffer from a similar dynamic in food. And, and while we have 
support, at least feel like we have a lot of abundance, right? If you go through Walmart, go through all the different aisles for, you know, the most specific categories, you know, there's, you know, really a, a white, a, a very broad diversity of food, right? And, you know, when you compare that to the Overton window, where, where I essentially explained, you know, we're essentially splitting over small differences, you can substitute, you know, perhaps the debate um, or, or, or the concept of, you know, debate in media and, and perhaps look at discounts, promotions, branding for food, and essentially see how big food has captured the obedience of customers, right? And, and so, again, walking through the aisles in the grocery store today, you're really shopping from, you know, a few, a very concentrated number of companies, usually five to 10 companies, depending on the category, perhaps, you know, you know, five, ultimately five consumer packaged goods. And, and you know, that definitely doesn't come off as being the case when you walk down any grocery store today, right? And, and an interesting stat that I pulled was that nearly 80% of all U.S. beef sales, for example, was really done by four companies. And I can guarantee that we see a lot more brands in the market today. So, you know, while we squabble over the various brands, flavors, packaging, all that kind of stuff, we're ultimately buying from or most likely to be buying from the same company. We just don't realize it. No, that's that's fascinating to me. You know, the idea of of all of that, the substantial portion of of beef sales just coming from four companies, like you said, eighty percent. How did we get here? Like, why is it that there's so few companies that claim that that lion's share of the sector? It happens slowly over time, and, and it really comes down to profit and the need for integration across the board to deliver those profits. If you look at the incentives that, you know, execs at these larger companies, you know, they're not rewarded for last year's profits or, you know, maintaining last year's profits. They're only rewarded for growing said profits. And the only way you can do that after a certain point is to really combine and, you know, add to your competitors. And it's really a situation of one plus one does equal three in a lot of situations because you can simply drive more of these efficiencies from a profit perspective. I also wonder if having, you know, once you're entrenched in certain way and you have relationships and, and contracts and that, it, that it's also easier for you to expand and also become more efficient at what you do because of, of those relationships. Absolutely, right? There's redundancies across the board and, and that allows you to cut down on costs and then integrate in the back end, right? The consumer doesn't really see any differences. You can have separate brands and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's just behind the scenes. So it's all the same companies, just two different products. You know, it's it, the way that I, I see that is it's the equivalent of having a bakery in town that has you know, five trucks that leave it, um, all, you know, with the same bread, but all with different branding and they all get to the store and you think, oh, I'm buying A or should I go for B or C? And it's somewhat, um, you know, all of the same thing. So we're actually picking for from a smaller selection uh, than we think we do. I, I wonder if that was a that was a surprise to you. And And the reason I ask is we both live in the greater Toronto area, which has such a diversity of choices. I mean, I have this story to share with you. The other day, 
I was making something that needed serrano peppers. So I went to my local Asian store and there were something like 15 to 20 varieties of peppers, like actual fresh peppers that I could buy. Peppers that I hadn't seen before. I actually made a video of it to show my friends because I thought it was just ridiculous. And given that we're surrounded by so much of a variety, I, I wonder if if you were surprised or, or do you think people know that their choices are actually limited? It probably depends on the product, but I really don't think people understand how limited their choices are. And, you know, we've been conditioned over a very long period of time to focus on the details, right? Like brand packaging, you know, checking to see if it's gluten-free, even though it's completely, completely irrelevant at times, versus, you know, looking at what we're actually buying and, and seeing if it's meaningfully different, right? And so, you know, we're, we're looking at all these small details that, you know, it's just been conditioned by these larger companies to focus on those details, not the actual broader product itself. Now, let's get to the point where we talk about why this is a problem. And I'm going to start off by asking you why this is a problem for the consumer. If the consumer so far over the last couple of years is happy, why does it matter? I mean, let's go through the benefits, right? Your your broader assortment, at least on paper, and and cheaper costs a lot of times. Sometimes it gets passed along to the consumer and better margins for the companies. But, yeah, I think there's a lot of underlying problems. And, you know, there's a bunch of them. I I don't know of all of them, but it it really ranges based on the industry. And if you think about, you know, some of the specific practices, I'll, I'll, you know, call out a couple specifically factory farming or some of the stuff that happens behind the scenes for ultra processed foods. Um, It's really quite scary to think about the downstream impact it can have from a health perspective. And and we've barely begun to put the dots together, right? And, And the worst part is that it'll be tough to attribute it back to the food companies because we'll never know what caused the problem, right? But there's a lot of unethical practices that are happening behind the world of factory farming and and definitely a lot of chemicals, a lot of ingredients that are simply invented to make this process more efficient that are, you know, more likely to be at the detriment to our, you know, the consumer's health. Mm, I think, I think that's actually an interesting point. And and that could be a differentiator for new companies that come in that, that they actually have the, there's an opportunity here to to provide healthy food. So what is that opportunity for disruptors? Yeah, I mean, it's quite similar to how we view social media today, except you replace the idea of the decentralization of big media companies with the idea of breaking down big food companies, right? And yes, there will be an underlying platform, right, most likely at least, that manages the distribution. But on top of that, you're going to see a lot of participants, likely prosumers, right, you know, social media influencers or the equivalent of that, who can source and make specialized products that go straight to the consumer. And, and I think that will be a huge opportunity and, and a very interesting disruptor when it comes to the broader food industry. What they're going up against, um, I mean, if you think about it, they're going up against highly capitalized companies um, who are entrenched in in distribution systems. 
And most of these companies have, have a really strong brand presence with, with consumers. What chance do disruptors have of, of capturing like even a small slice of that market or even, or, or capturing it before they get replicated? I mean, honestly, it sounds pretty similar to how we describe newspapers that, uh, you know, not too long ago. And we saw how that played out, right? And mm-hmm. in all honesty, I think it will absolutely be a challenge, right? But it's not necessarily insurmountable. If dollars could solve everything, there wouldn't be a need for any of these companies, right? And, and I think consumers now more than ever before have that power to really vote with their dollars, right? And, and I think that, you know, ultimately convenience, choice, and, and, and really distinguishing true choice versus, you know, apparent choice will, will be, uh, or, you know, paper choice will, will, will be uh, quite important, right? So, uh, you know, for sure there's a risk, I, I, but, you know, I think that there's, you know, definitely a lot of capitalized companies on the other end of the spectrum that are aimed to disrupt the market uh, that have a legitimate chance of doing so. Hmm. Uh, this conversation makes me think of a, a, um, a Suresh Das. I'm sure that you've heard of him, popular critic in, yeah. in Toronto, food critic. It, you know, when I came, when I first came across his work, one of the things that stood out for me is you have food critics that talk about the super fancy restaurants in Toronto, you know, the Soto Sotos and the, and the Bar Rivals and all of those restaurants. But what Suresh Das was doing was, um, talking about these really small places um, around the GTA in strip malls, plazas that that you would easily ignore if you walked or or drove by them, and there were foodies and food bloggers and food critics that were that were doing it, but he really uh, he really leaned into it. Like they weren't doing it with as much a focus as he did in Toronto, and now he's kind of built a brand around it. Like people hang on his recommendations. Um, there was a, there's a pizza place near us that he spoke about on air one day. And we love that place. And we used to go to it all the time. And it was like a before and an after. It was a family owned place. And once it went through that Suresh Das bump, there were lines. You couldn't get a reservation to like, <laughs> to, for a meal on like a Thursday, right? So. Yeah. It, it's funny. It's funny that it's it's kind of an inkling of that same disruption, but with food writing. You know what I mean? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and I think it's a very exciting opportunity uh, that you know I hope that it plays out sooner than later as well. I think uh, definitely a lot of at least great food to be had. Well, and and perhaps healthier food. Which for some reason now makes me hungry. It's like it's past dinner and I'm hungry. But great topic. I, um, I, I'm, you know, let's, let's watch and see and come back to this because I, I think that there's, there's a little bit more digging that we can do here. I, I find this a fascinating, a fascinating topic. So we're on next week again. Yep. Absolutely. Perfect. Talk next week. Good. Chat soon.